Good morning, church. Thank you. Thank you for walking alongside of us. I'm going to say more about that in just a second, but we have a lot to talk about today because we are in the last of the messages in our vision series. Every August, we try to remind ourselves that we as a community of faith have wrapped our hands, our, our, our minds around the idea that we are passionately becoming more like Jesus. We, we know that it's not us doing something that makes us more like Jesus, it's us allowing Him to make us more like Him. We are passionately becoming more like Jesus and we are committed to the transformation of our homes, our church, our community, and our world. How do we do that? We love God, we love people, we make disciples, and we make a difference. So today I wanna to talk about making a difference. And let me start with this. Understanding the gospel is a key to making a difference. There's a lot of people in our world who make a difference, who, who do altruistic things, who, who are uh, involved in philanthropy, and, and they allow their time and their resources to go to helping people. But I've never been more convinced that change that really makes a difference is an eternal change that starts when we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Many of you are new to this conversation. Uh, every week I meet people who are new to our church, and, and I can only assume that maybe you are, are new to this idea of faith. Well, let me kind of bury the lead and tell you where I want to go for the rest of the morning. If you are trying to understand life, you need Jesus. If you've grown complacent in your discipleship, you need Jesus. If you're walking through a life event that has crushed you, you need Jesus. At the center of making a difference is God's Spirit in us, with us, through us, and in my case, in spite of us. We need Jesus. So we're wondering what that might look like. And I will be the first to confess that this series didn't exactly unfold like I thought it might. For you who are new to our fellowship, my son passed away about a month ago. He uh, passed away due to his struggle with addiction. We didn't see it coming. We thought he was really, really getting better. But this church wrapped around us in ways that we could not have imagined. And the heart of our church is that. And so every August, I, I think I'm gonna come back from my study leave, all prepared, and I'm going to just ambush you with great preaching. Well, you got ambushed with great preaching, it just wasn't me. <laughs> Brian did a phenomenal job uh, relating the, uh, the story of a woman caught in adultery and then a, a woman at the well to teach us to, that, that, that loving people is at the heart of who we are. 
Alan did a wonderful job last week of helping us understand making disciples. And many of you thought about the two people who, who, who you follow and the two people who you think might follow you. But what we're talking about is making a difference. And certainly, that's at the heart of this great, great church. But it is a new reality. We understand that a, a vision for a church is, is, is only as strong as each person saying, I'm going to buy into that. And if we're not convinced that the gospel, that our relationship with Jesus Christ, that our heart to follow Him, our heart to know Him, our heart to be passionately more like Him, if we're not convinced of that, then how can we share that with others? So today I want to kind of wrap up the series and talk about what it looks like to make a difference. Now we all kind of want to make a difference, don't we? We all think about what it would look like to make a difference. I mean, none of us want to be that pebble thrown in a pond and the ripples last just a minute and then the water's still again and nobody can ever know that a rock was thrown. None of us want to, to, to think that what we're doing won't last at all. And, and, and quite frankly, about five years ago when I started talking in language of love God, love people, make disciples, make a difference, I thought about the, the cars that pass by here every day that on Ashford Dunwoody Road right here in Mount Vernon up to the north, that I've seen traffic reports that say somewhere between or upwards of 25,000 cars per day go by here. And even back then I was thinking, what if they look this way? Do they even know what we are? Back then our signage on Ashford Dunwoody was horrible. And you might think we were a middle school or you might think we were a very large library. You may or may not think we are a church. Well, we've moved the, the, the cross tower out front. We put better signage on the, the wall, but still none of that matters unless the community of faith has committed to making a difference. So that's kind of what today is about. Let me frame it a little bit couple of stories that I would share with you to start. One is famous. One is a little less famous. The first one is from Lauren Isley's book, The Star Thrower. And the signature story in that book uh, has many, many variations. I'll tell you my version of it. A man is walking across the beach one day and it's littered with starfish, some freakish tide or, or something has happened in the surf, but all these starfish have watched up on the beach. And he spots a little boy down the beach and he's just kind of flinging them into the ocean. He's just throwing them. And the man said to the little boy, he said, what are you doing? He said, what are you, what are you doing? He said, well, if the starfish stay up here on the beach, the sand will get in their pores and they will, will die. So I'm throwing them back in the ocean. He said, there's hundreds of them. Are you really making a difference? And as he threw one into the ocean, he said, made a difference for that one. <laughs> made a difference for that one. And sometimes we get frustrated that, that, that we think an opportunity is wasted or a life is wasted. My son's life, the life of Jim Elliott, of Nate Saint, 1956, these five missionaries 
approached the Ayuca Indians of Ecuador with the hope of sharing the gospel with them. The Indians misunderstood their intent. They murdered all of them. And in her book, Through Gates of Splendor, Jim Elliott's widow, Elizabeth, postulated that his life wasn't wasted, young though it was, that his life meant something, that his life counted for something, that countless people have volunteered for mission service because of their story, that the Missionary Aviators Fellowship began because these five pilots gave their lives for Christ. We would be tempted to wonder in our circumstances, is a life wasted? Is an opportunity wasted? What about my son's life? What about Jim Elliott's life? What about the life of Stephen, who was one of the first martyrs in the New Testament? And that's where I want to go today. Now, it's been a minute since I've been up here, so you probably need to get comfortable. <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit about Acts chapter 6 seven, eight, nine, maybe into ten. So, uh, get a Snickers bar. Acts chapter six. It is the, the birth of the New Testament church. It's, it's the description of, of how people are beginning to understand the relationship uh, with Jesus Christ and the fact that their sins might be forgiven if they embrace this new way, this new life. Chapter 7, things begin to heat up. And, and in chapter 7, we meet a guy named Stephen, who was one of the first deacons. They, 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 they set aside some deacons in the early church because they realized that administration needed to walk hand in hand with preaching. And so Stephen was one of the first deacons, and he was ministering, he was preaching, he was proclaiming the name of Christ, and he stirred up some problems. The Romans didn't really like it because anything that disturbed the peace disturbed the Romans. And the Jewish leaders didn't really like it because he was proclaiming a, a completion of the Jewish story, and, and they didn't like that. End of the day, they both rose up against and decided that Stephen needed to die. And so he was stoned, he was executed publicly in the streets, and we would be tempted to say, his life was wasted. But in the very beginning of chapter 8, and that's where I want to go today, mostly chapter 8, we, we have this interesting statement, as a result of the persecution of Stephen, there was a scattering. We call that the diaspora in New Testament terms, that there was, there was a persecution and the Christians in Jerusalem fled in order not to suffer the same fate as Stephen. And so there was a scattering, and the result of the scattering was that churches were planted in Asia, churches were planted in Greece, churches were planted uh, apparently in Africa. That's the story we pick up today. Because in Acts chapter 8, we meet a guy named Philip. And that's where I wanted to pick up today. Chapter 8, verse 1, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered 
throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. So the, the apostles, the 12 or 11 by now, stayed close to Jerusalem, but the rest scattered. They buried Stephen and lamented his passing. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria. So, so Samaria was about 40 miles west of Jerusalem. If you fly in today to the city of Tel Aviv, it would be about 40 miles northeast of Tel Aviv. And so there's, there, there's, there's a little bit of a migration out of the mountains of Jerusalem, Samaria. And it was the place where those enemies of the Jewish people lived, the Samaritans. When, uh, Brian, I think you talked from John chapter 4 about the Samaritan woman at the well. And so this was a region that the Jews had avoided, but that Stephen, I mean, that Philip said, hey, that's going to be fertile ground for sharing the gospel. So he preached the repentance of sins. He, he, he gave them an opportunity to repent. They did. There was amazing work that was going on there. Put a pen right there. We also meet a guy there named Simon. I'm going to tell his story in a later sermon. And then down in chapter 8, verse 26, Philip receives new instructions. <laughs> now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now I don't know what angel appeared to him. I don't know if it was Gabriel or Michael or Roma Downey. I don't know who showed up to give him these instructions. But this evangelist, who was doing incredible evangelism, is told to go to a place where there's no people. So imagine you're a car salesman. You're, you're, you're selling cars like nobody's business. And your boss says, I need you to go to a small town with no people and no car dealerships and no prospects. Well, as a salesman, you're frustrated. And I would imagine Philip was a little uh, unsettled, but he doesn't indicate that. Let me keep reading the story. This is a desert place. Got that? By the way, the road from Jerusalem to Gaza is still there. It's the road that goes from Jerusalem to the only border crossing between Israel and Egypt that is still open. And it's, it's at the base or the, the southernmost end of the Gaza Strip. That's why it calls it the, road, the Gaza Road. So he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian. Okay, we meet somebody else. An Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Now let me stop there. An Ethiopian African man, likely he was very dark-skinned, and if he was guarding the money, he was probably a big fella. He was a court official of Candace, and that is not a, a personal name, that's actually a title. Ethiopia had a king, but we all know the real power behind the throne is his mom. And so the queen mother, that was the official title of the queen mother, and apparently somehow she had heard that something was cooking in Jerusalem, 
And so she sent an emissary to check it out. Now, I wonder if our version of Scripture feels a little compressed. What if the scattering after Stephen's death had somebody not just go to Samaria and Judea, but what if somebody went to Africa? What if somebody from Jerusalem ended up, it's only 200 miles from Jerusalem to Cairo. What if somebody found their way to Africa and begin to talk about this Jesus who was the, the fulfillment of all the prophecies and, and how everything pointed to this guy and was an exciting new piece of news. And, and the queen mother over in Ethiopia said, I want some of that. I want to know what's going on. We, 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 we are relentlessly pursuing gods around here. And we, we certainly want to know if a new one has shown up. What if she sent this guy, trusted member of the royal court, I can only imagine he was dressed in his finery. He was able to buy a scroll, which would have been very, very expensive because he was reading it in his chariot. Let's go on. Said he had gone to Jerusalem to worship, verse 27, verse 28. Now he was returning seated in his chariot. That implies a large chariot, more like a wagon because he was seated. Somebody else was likely driving. The Spirit said to Philip, so we've heard that an angel prompted him, now the Spirit prompts him, go over and join this chariot. How much fun is that? So again, a large chariot, not one of those Ben-Hur kind of things that doesn't feel like it's got a lot of room. Go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran up to him, I guess he did, he was on foot, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? So, so a lot there, he, he, he was in possession of a papyrus scroll, which would have been stupid expensive back then. And so he was taking it back to the queen, but he was reading it on the way, which meant that he was educated. He could understand the words. Likely they were the Latin translation of the Old Testament. And so he was reading, and Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come sit with him. The passage of Scripture was reading was from Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Like a sheep he was led to slaughter, like a lamb before it sure is silent. He opens his mouth in humiliation. Justice is denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from him? And the Ethiopian said to Philip, is this talking about this guy, Isaiah, or someone else? Scripture says Philip began with that Scripture and preached Jesus to him. Begin right where he was. So apparently it worked well. So And as they were going along the road, they came to water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Brian, you struggled that in Acts chapter, uh, uh, John chapter 8, the first 11 verses. You wonder if they were supposed to be here. Look at Acts 8.37. It in there. Because it's a commentary that's there. It's a, it's a baptism slogan, just like we heard up here. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You are buried with Christ in baptism. You are raised to walk in newness of life. Back then, they would have said something like that. You may be baptized if you believe with all your heart. And then the Ethiopian would have responded, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So, so that was a, uh, maybe an editorial later on. It doesn't matter. It's Scripture. 
supposed to be there because God put it there. And so we get the idea that the Ethiopian responded. He was baptized. And then the scripture says something interesting. Philip was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord, verse 39. And the Ethiopian went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus or Ashdod. And he passed through until he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Uh, Israel travelers, that would be Caesarea Maritime, where we find him living in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is experiencing some doubt about the gospel, and he goes to let Philip minister to him. So what do we do with all this? It seems to me like we kind of have a formula for making a difference right there. It seems to me like in the story that you just heard, that there are some things we can see that might encourage us as we try to make a difference, whether it's in our homes, our church, our community, or our world. Here they are. Philip was sensitive to what the Lord was doing. That's one of the hardest things any of us have to do. We think we are following in a direction. We think we're going down a road that God would have us to be on. We, we think that we've got some plans. We responded to some inclination or some, some scripture or some counsel. And, and, and we've got a, a plan. We're walking down that road. And all of a sudden, the Spirit tells us that's not the right road. Pivot. Make a change. Back away. Was it the wrong road, Lord? No, it's not the wrong road. I, I just have another road for you to walk right now. And it says a lot about a difference maker who says, Lord, I am going to be open to whatever it is you have as your spirit prompts. I'm listening. A difference maker listens to the Spirit of God. Don't miss this one. He was okay with the fact that this guy didn't look like him. By now, I can only imagine that Philip, one of the first deacons, so he, got, he was quickly associated with Stephen. So I would imagine he had to leave town in a hurry. Probably didn't have his, his U-Haul truck full of possessions. Probably he left with the clothes on his back. He, he hoofed it over to Samaria. He ministered there, running ragged. And now the Lord redirects him, go to the desert. I can only imagine what he looked like as he approached the chariot of this Ethiopian, likely a large fellow, certainly a very dark-skinned fellow, regally dressed in all the finery, servants driving the wagon, probably another attendant somewhere nearby, and he is told to run up and join the chariot. And it would have been easy for him to say, well, he doesn't look like me. Maybe I don't speak his language. Maybe I don't understand his culture. What if I say something to offend? A difference maker is okay with differentness. And what Robert said a minute ago about, about the amazing explosion of culture that has become Dunwoody Baptist Church. Glory to God. Glory to God. A difference maker is okay with differentness. 
A difference maker recognizes that God's at work. Clearly, a salesman who can sell a car where there's nobody to sell a car to, there's something going on. And an evangelist who is told to go to the desert to evangelize in a place where there's no people, clearly it's God who is giving those instructions. And I love the, the, the way that it, it, it talked here. It says that an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go, so he went. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join, so he did. So quickly and, and, and almost inextricably between those two, he recognized that God is at work and he obeys immediately. Someone has said that delayed obedience is disobedience. And he decided the Spirit told him, so he went. The angel told him, so he went. It, it was a sense of, I don't have to figure it all out. I just need to obey. A difference maker is sensitive to what God is saying, is okay with difference, recognizes that God has worked, and he obeys, she obeys immediately. The really scary part about this story is the next. You know, these lawyers are told never ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. It would be terrifying for most preachers to say, you tell me a verse you're thinking about of that, and I'll start there, and I'll work my way to Jesus. I mean, I think he was kind of lucky it was Isaiah. What if it was like Hosea or Habakkuk or Leviticus? Because it's, it, 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 uh, he, he, he has a Greek name. He, he likely didn't go to Torah school. And yet he knew the Scripture enough and he trusted the Spirit to inform him enough that he would start wherever this guy was in Scripture, in culture, in life. And he would take all of those stories and say, let me lead you to Jesus. He was available. He allowed God to use his availability. And I, I kind of want to add one more as I wrap this thing up. The story goes on to say that he beamed away somewhere else. Now, maybe he just walked away. We don't know. The, the, there's a suddenness that's suggested in the Scripture that the Spirit snatched him away. Whatever it was that happened, something didn't happen that I might have expected. I might have expected the Ethiopian to go, wait, wait, I, I need you some more. I need to talk to you some more. I don't know enough. Who's Isaiah anyway? I, I need some more lessons. I need some more instruction. I, you can't leave me just now. Hey, I'll pay you to stay around and teach me. But the Scripture says that the Ethiopian went on his way rejoicing. There's a humility about the story that, that I'm pretty sure I needed to add in the formula, a difference maker demonstrates humility. And we see it on both sides of the coin. The, the Ethiopian is teachable. He has access to everything. He has money to buy scrolls. He has fine clothes. He has a chariot, probably two horses, two horsepower. Doesn't sound like much today, but 
big time then. He has lots, and yet he was humble enough to say, Who, how can I know any of this unless someone teaches me? And Philip was humble enough to disregard any of the roadblocks that should have been in the way because he knew that God had called him to be a difference maker. And somehow he gave the Ethiopian just enough because God had another assignment for him up the coast of Ashdod. Folks, I go back to where I started. If this is your first time to process this story of a man named Jesus who was born in a humble, humble way, who lived a life without sin, who taught of God's kingdom, who was arrested, crucified, buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead so that God could show us that life was not ended with earthly life, but it had eternal life as a father in the last month, I tell you, I cling to that. And if this is your first time hearing that, this needs to be the day that you receive Jesus. If you're aware that you've grown complacent in your discipleship, that you're not so sure about your availability or your sensitivity to the Spirit or your obedience immediate or, or maybe even your, your knowledge of Scripture. You need Jesus. You need a reminder that He is, He was, He always will be. He comforts us, He guides us, He instructs us, He walks with us in our grief. If you've had a life circumstance that has just rocked your world and you think, I need to step back from all this faith talk because I need to solve some things. I need to get some things in order. I need to put some things in place. I need to take care of some arrangements. Then I'll head on back to church and get the spiritual shot in the arm. You need Jesus more than ever. Trust me. So what's the takeaway? You need Jesus. You need him at whatever life intersection you may be. Because without Jesus, we'll never be a real difference maker. But with him, it makes a difference for that one. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for your word, for the stories that are in it for the way that you show us how we can love you and love people, how we can make disciples, how we can make a difference. Thank you for this great church with a heart to be passionately more like Jesus. May that be our today, for I pray in his name. Amen.